Well, good morning. I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just phenomenal to be with you. I think of you after having been here last year, as Paul wrote to the Philippians, I thank God upon every remembrance uh, of you. And uh, I, I just want to say something you know about yourself. Sometimes you just need, you know, every once in a while you go to the doctor, you just need the doctor to tell you, you're really okay. Uh, and and uh, I just want to tell you, you're better than okay. Uh, I want to come and tell you that uh, I get to be in a lot of churches and uh, there is something about this church, there's something about this fellowship, something about its commitment to truth, something about the winsomeness and hospitality and the, the warmness of this church. I, I, I mean, several things make me happy. And I, I'm, uh, I'm in my sixth decade of life and different things make me happy now than made me happy earlier. Um, just being alive is a good thing to be happy about. And uh, that, that's a good thing. But what, one of the things that made me happy is looking at these young men up here, uh, especially leading in worship and playing instruments and things. You look at it and you say, well, there's something really, really healthy about a church. When you look up and you see, uh, you see a picture of health like that. Grace Church of the Valley is a very special place. This valley is a very special place. My goodness, how beautiful it was yesterday and just today to look up and see what the Lord does here. It's uh, it's something I know you know as home. It's a town you know as home. I just want to tell you it's also a wonderful place, a blessed place to get to come and visit. And to Pastor Scott Adervanis, my goodness, thank you for having me here. Thank you for your leadership in this church because everything I just said uh, is at least in large, a large part pointing to how the Lord uses you as the under-shepherd of this flock. And I will tell you this, over, over a period of time, Every church, and, and I don't know if this is good news or bad news for a lot of churches. It depends on the pastor, but, but here's the good news and the bad news. Over time, the church begins to look like and sound like the preacher. That's just true. That's just true. If it's good, it's really good. If it's bad, it's really bad. So you go to a place like Grace Community Church in California where John MacArthur's been pastor now for almost 50 years. You know, people sound like John MacArthur. Uh, you ask them a question, they're going to sound like John answering a question. And, uh, and, and, and that, that's the way it is virtually everywhere. And that's why it's so important that you have a godly, Bible-teaching, convictional, courageous pastor. And I'm so thankful to be here in a church that has just that. I want to invite you to turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians. Dan Dumas had you in 1 Corinthians already. Or as one presidential candidate would say, turn to 1 Corinthians. And uh, you will... Uh, We'll find ourselves together in 1 Corinthians in the very first chapter. You know, from time to time, different texts jump out at us in a different way. Every single word of Scripture is inspired. Every single word of Scripture is fully inspired. All Scripture is eternal. All Scripture is equally, eternally, comprehensively, absolutely true and trustworthy. But at different points in our lives, different texts jump out at us with a different significance. When, when, we need, uh, when we need peace in a time of trouble, reading the 23rd Psalm comes to us in a very different way than if we're reading it. And just a day that seems like any other day, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When we're standing at the open hole in the ground into which a loved one is soon to be placed in terms of earthly remains, it means everything to us to turn to Romans chapter 8 and to be able to declare that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, not even death. And, and one of those moments, it just, not only with Easter and the festival of the resurrection coming in just a couple of weeks, but 
especially when we look at the, at the grave, we are reminded that indeed, as Paul writes, the mortal shall put on immortality and thus shall be fulfilled what the scripture promises. O death, where is thy sting? O death, where is thy victory? At times, a text jumps out at us because all of a sudden we realize that's where I'm living right now. Now, in a sense, that's where we've been living ever since we were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, as Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. In one sense, just every, every word has meant everything to us every day, but some days, some words mean just a bit more to us because we realize that's where I am right now. That's where I think we are right now in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, and we will continue through the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is stronger than men, is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Paul here is writing to the church at Corinth, and what follows is a very tough letter. Second Corinthians is a very tough letter. We call this 1 Corinthians, but it's evidently really not 1 Corinthians. It's evidently 2 Corinthians, because Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians a previous letter. You read 2 Corinthians, it's evidently not 2 Corinthians, or even 3 Corinthians, it's 4 Corinthians, because in 2 Corinthians, he mentions a letter that's not 1 Corinthians. Now, here's what we should get from that. Are we missing two letters? No. Paul wrote at least four letters to the church at Corinth, but the Holy Spirit wrote two. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write what we know as 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and whatever's in those other two letters was surely good for the church at Corinth, but it is not the word of God given to us as a part of the apostolic testimony. 
First Corinthians is. Second Corinthians surely is. In First Corinthians chapter one, Paul is explaining just how contrary to the wisdom of the world the gospel of Christ is. And I say, there are times when a text jumps out at us because we say, this is where we're living right now. Because brothers and sisters, this is where we're living right now. Let's just look at our current predicament as Christians in America in the year 2016. What we believe is increasingly distancing us even from our neighbors, even from the people we thought we shared a culture, a civilization, a community with. We are noticing day by day, headline by headline, that there is now distance between those who are faithful followers of Christ, those who are biblically defined Christians, and the world around us. And it's coming faster and slower in some places than in others. If you're in Manhattan right now, it's going really, really fast and has been for some time. If you're in Los Angeles, increasingly you see this. If if you're in Seattle or Portland or in, in a city like that, frankly, you no longer even expect biblical Christianity to be a part of the public conversation. The secularization of the, of the United States, the increasing godlessness of the culture has now reached the point where increasing numbers of people around us don't know even what they don't know. We have shifted from a significant number of Americans who've been trying to say, I don't agree with you, to an increasing number of, and percentage of Americans look at us and say, I don't even understand what you're saying. We're in a completely different world. I find myself in this world in terms of public engagement rather regularly. And in that, there's a great shift. I used to be called by journalists who disagreed with what I was saying. They operated from a completely different worldview and they knew it. They had a pretty good idea what I was going to say when they called me because even though they were not biblical Christians, they had at least known some. Now, after doing this for so many decades, I will tell you that most of the reporters who call me, most of the people I engage with in terms of the national media, they don't know what we believe. And, and they are so distant from the worldview of biblical Christianity, that it, it's like I tell people, it's a National Geographic moment. It's like all of a sudden, they have to go back into the jungles and find this odd tribe of people who believe in this exotic worldview based upon the scriptures. And every once in a while, they just find one and they write about it. And we're living in a strange time in which the world is telling us what you believe doesn't fit the modern world. We just need to look each other in the eye and say, that's exactly what the predominant influences in our culture are telling us. What you believe isn't plausible in the modern world. It just doesn't fit the modern world. And you're going to have to come up with a new message. Now, it's important that we recognize what's going on here because if we don't, we very well may find ourselves unfaithful by responding to that kind of pressure by doing exactly what the world's demanding of us. And that's why we need to gather together on the Lord's Day for any number of reasons. It's just good for Christ's people to gather get together. We are, we, we are not to neglect the gathering of ourselves together. And we are to look forward, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, to Christ's people gathering together. And we gather together to be instructed by the Word, to enjoy the fellowship of fellow believers, to sing those songs. And by the way, we, we need to be Lutheran when we sing hymns. Martin Luther said, when you sing hymns, sing them to the praise of God and to the absolute irritation of the devil. And uh, that's a good thing to know. When we sing, you know, because, I mean, it's all the songs we just sang. You say, boy, you know, it was wonderful to praise God and to be able to listen to those words we just sang. Well, they are meant to glorify God and simultaneously to irritate the devil. 
and we are to do it with as much energy as possible. But when you, when you think about gathering together, one of the reasons why we need to gather together as the church is because we need in effect to gather together to remind ourselves we're going out into a world that increasingly is honest about understanding what we believe as dangerous, as, as intolerant, as uh, out of place in the modern world. Now, let me tell you that that evidently is an argument that is quite convincing to some churches. It evidently is, just has a lot of traction, and it's not particularly new. If you go back to the, to the late 19th century and the early 20th century, Protestant liberalism emerged. Liberal theology began to emerge. And what liberal theology was, was, was churches saying, and they're theologians, and, and they, they were in a common conspiracy to say, look, what biblical Christianity represents is out of place in the modern world. And so we're going to have to update the faith. And, and what did update the faith mean? Well, it meant if, if the modern world doesn't believe anymore that it's plausible to say that Jesus Christ was conceived of a virgin, you throw out the virgin birth. If the modern world says dead people don't rise from the dead, then you dispense with the resurrection. Or you don't actually say you don't believe in the resurrection anymore. What you do is you say that evidently the resurrection was a spiritual experience inside the hearts of the disciples, not the emptying out of an actual tomb. Doctrine by doctrine, liberal theology just said, okay, if the modern age says that doesn't work, then we'll come up with a message that works. And then you can fast forward to the last half of the 20th century and you could say, well, there are places where it's not exactly liberal theology that's so much affecting what's going on, where it's not liberal theology that is the agenda, it's just no theology. And and this gets to another point. If you're not teaching and preaching the gospel of Christ, you actually may be saying nothing at all. Just turn on the television. I don't have to name names, but a lot of the people that get up, it's not that they ever actually utter heresy. It's just that they never say anything. But they say it very well. They say nothing very well and with a pepsodent smile and millions and millions of people are evidently tuning in. The prosperity theology that emerged in the, in the last half of the 20th century in a huge way, and it, 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 is, it, is, an, it is an anti-gospel Pastor Scott this morning read from Galatians chapter 1, and what my mind immediately went to was something that I I just came across in the last several hours, that this prosperity theology that's writ large across so much of America, where people think that Christ came in order that we'll be healthy and wealthy, promises in in the word faith movement and all the rest. And you look at it and they say, how can that happen? It's because the scandal of the cross wasn't enough. What Christ did for us and all that Christ promises us isn't for these churches enough. They, they want more. In this particular moment, this passage jumps out at us to humble us from thinking that this is as new as we think. Look at how Paul begins in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. In a very similar way, Paul comes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 
to state it in other words. The word of the cross, that's the gospel, that's the message of the cross. He says, the very essence of the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is very clarifying to us. This is, this is one of those moments when we say, okay, where we're living right now, this text is essentially speaking to what we see taking place all around us. And as a matter of fact, we can't understand what is going on around us unless we have the Holy Spirit inspiring the Apostle Paul to write to a church in Corinth in the first century what is the very word of God to us now in the 21st century. And what we are facing now is exactly what they faced then. What was this? People in Corinth, believing themselves to be very up-to-date and intellectually sophisticated, heard the gospel of Christ and said, that's foolishness. There are far too many Christians today who are receiving that kind of response. There are far too many Christians who, in preaching the gospel or in speaking of Christ, they immediately get this kickback coming from the secular culture, that's foolishness. And and there's a whole generation of Christians right now who appear to be getting weak theological knees when the world turns to us and says, that's foolishness. And we need to be reminded right here from this text that when the Apostle Paul was preaching and when he's writing here to the Corinthians in the first century, 2,000 years ago, he said then what we now see. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. There's so much here, but let's just look at those words for a moment. For the word of the cross, that is the message of the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel of which Paul is unashamed in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that gospel is folly, foolishness. Now, what in the world does foolishness mean here? My grandmother had a very limited number of strong words. This is my mother's mother, and... uh, I had the benefit of growing up where both sets of my grandparents were just absolutely a part of my life. It was like I had six parents, in essence. I had my mother, my father, and then two sets of grandparents. And, uh, and I, I, I could ride my bicycle from one house to the other house and was just, and, and I found out that what this, I mean, it doesn't take, boys will figure this out. It was really advantageous to show up at my mother's parents for the midday meal because that was a farming family and the midday meal, midday meal was the big meal. But my other grandparents, he worked in a phosphate mine, and he came home, the big dinner, the big meal was dinner. The only thing is, we called the midday meal dinner and the evening meal supper in the South, which completely confuses my wife from Michigan. <laughs> but nonetheless, I could figure out, okay, I'm going to be here and there. And, and you just listen to the chatter. You know, you listen to, one of the great things kids benefit from is just listening to adults they know and love, they know love them, talk. And, and I picked up all kinds of vocabulary that turned out not to exactly work later in life. For instance, my grandmother would never said a bad word ever, ever, ever. But her curse word, in effect, was the word mercy. When she would hear something scandalous, she would just go, mercy. And, uh, and, and when, when something would say, you know, this, you know I, di- I didn't even know what it was, but I knew it was bad if my grandmother put down, put down her napkin and said, mercy. It did not make the scripture make sense to me, however, when I read of the mercy of God. I, just, I, I had to find out, actually, that meant something else than God putting down his napkin and going, mercy. 
But nonetheless, she used the word foolishness as the worst possible word. And, and uh, if she said you were up to foolishness, that was, that was her last warning. Foolishness was the last thing, as I knew, before death. <laughs> and, and, and what is foolishness? What is folly? It's that which is absolutely wrong. And, 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 and not just wrong, wrong with horrifying consequences. You see, we, t- we talk about foolishness as something that's a, that's a trifle. You know, we'll just see something and we'll say, well, you know, that's foolish. No, that may be ridiculous, but true foolishness leads to death. In the biblical understanding of foolishness, foolishness leads to death. It's the fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. The ultimate fool is the one who denies God and the one who rejects the gospel. But notice what Paul says here. He says that the word of the cross is foolishness to a specifically defined people, to those who are perishing. Now, that's really important. That's really important. The word of the cross, the gospel, is foolishness to those who are headed for hell. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are under the judgment of God and facing the right judgment of his wrath poured out upon them eternally. To them, the word of the cross is foolishness. But then again, as as we see so often in Paul's letters, here here comes this, this transition. But to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. So there's the alternative. There's the great worldview clash. We can say, what we're looking at in this country is a great clash between believers and a secularizing world. Yes, but that's not enough. What we see in this society is between those who believe in an objective morality based upon biblical truth and those who believe that all morality is relative. Yes, that's true, but that's not enough. And there are people who say, well, what's going on right now is that there are people who are operating out of a Christian worldview and those who are operating out of a non-Christian, which by definition means an anti-Christian worldview. And that's profoundly true, but that's not enough. Because what Paul tells us here is the world's actually separated. The great worldview divide, the great philosophical, ideological, spiritual divide, the divide that matters most is between those to whom the gospel is foolishness and they are perishing, and those who are being saved, to whom the gospel of Christ, the word of the cross, appears as the power of God. Now hold on to that. As a matter of fact, Paul, as he often does, says, you would have known this already had you read the Bible. That's exactly what he does when he cites an Old Testament passage, as he does here, where the Lord says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The Lord is saying, look, I will receive glory and I will share it with none other. You know, you look at the academic world and you see how the academic world works and, uh, and, and, and you see how people look for what the academic world promises and you look at the titles and the endowed chairs and you look at all the way that, that the academic world reinforces one another and you, and you look at that and oftentimes I look at that and I see people who are in that and I say, you know, you better get that now because if that's the reward you want, it's not gonna last very long. And, and, and that's what's going on here. This is God saying he's going to dethrone the philosophers, the wisdom of the age, the, the wise people, the people who appear to a fallen world to be the actually 
absolutely most intelligent people, the, the intellectual and academic elite, they better enjoy it now because the Lord says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. This, you might say the sophistication of the sophisticated I will destroy. The Lord then asked the question through Paul, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, don't take this personally, but this is about us. This is about the church. This is about the church at Corinth, but it's about the church wherever it's found. The Apostle Paul is putting it this way. When you look around the church, your first thought is not, wow, here's where the Hollywood intellectual political elite shows up every Lord's Day morning. So it's okay, just look around the room. The A-list of invitees in Hollywood is not here. You can look around the room, the, uh, the, the American... Academy of Learned Societies is not having its meeting immediately following this worship service. Now, it's not really an insult. He's not saying we're fools. To the contrary, that's, that's not what the Bible's saying. But the Bible is saying, look, those who live by a secular fallen reason and those who give themselves to a secular understanding and wisdom as the highest of all goods, that's not the people who show up here. Not on those terms anyway. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? And then Paul just simply says, God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. And he explains why. For sins of verse 21, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Wow. We are just told that this is not God's plan B. That's really, really important. We have to be careful when we're speaking of the gospel of Christ. We never allow it to sound like God's plan B. And there's some evangelicals who do that, and they don't actually listen to themselves and what they're saying. They'll say, listen, first we had the law, but God's people were unable to keep the law, and so God had to renegotiate how he was going to save us. And so God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have everlasting life. There's God's plan B. But the Bible tells us that God saving a people for his name and for his glory by the blood of his son was his plan A. He doesn't need plan B. That's why the Gospel of John, in which we find that most famous of verses, John 3.16, begins, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is God's plan A. God's plan A was to thwart the wisdom of the wise by saving us in such a way that only he could come up with this. He didn't want to save us by wisdom. And, and, and what does this mean? This means that those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, those of us who have come to follow Christ, we've repented of our sins and believed in him, it is not because we are more intelligent than those who have not come. Now, you can say, well, in a sense it is. Well, that's in the very sense Paul's talking about. But we're going to get an answer to the question you're about to ask in just a minute. The important thing for us to note is we are not here because of our intelligence. We're not here because of our IQ. 
Christianity is based upon truth claims, and those truth claims have to be understood. There is an essential intellectual content to the Christian faith. Even the Apostle Paul will write in Romans chapter 10, that salvation comes to those who call upon the name of the Lord, who confess with their lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. There is essential intellectual content, but we, when you put us next to our next to our neighbors, we have not come to Christ because we are smarter than they are, but there's gonna be some other explanation because God did not intend to save the world through wisdom, but rather by his own saving power through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, hold on to that. Let's ask the question, what is the problem? Why is the cross folly? The apostle Paul tells us exactly. He gives us two patterns of response, as you see. You see this in verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Now look at that. He he tells us that the word of the cross, when we preach Christ, it is a stumbling block to Jews and it's folly to Gentiles. Two patterns of response. And by the way, these patterns of response continue right now. Why do most persons who are born Jews, why do most Jewish people reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is because the cross is and has been and always will be until Jesus comes a stumbling block. How is it a stumbling block? It's a, it's a scandal. How is it a scandal? It is because what the Jews were looking for, and this is very clear because the disciples themselves show evidence of this, What the disciples were looking for was a political Messiah who would come to sit on David's throne. Does Christ sit on David's throne? He does so eternally. And everything that was promised that would happen in terms of the restoration of Israel and all this, it will happen in accordance with God's word. But as the the New Testament makes clear, not in his first coming when he came to die for our sins, but in his second coming. But to the Jews... It was an absolute scandal that Christ was crucified on a cross. Instead of coming to be victorious over Rome, he was crucified on a Roman cross. That was a scandal to the Jewish mind in the first century, and it is a scandal to this age. It's a scandal to this very moment. The second pattern of response is the Greeks, the Gentiles, and they have rejected the gospel because they seek wisdom. Now, now, why is that a problem? Well, it's because of this. There are two ways to think of seeking wisdom. One is truly to seek wisdom and, and, and then to be rightly guided into where wisdom can be found. And the other is to appear to be wise. And, and this is exactly what the Apostle Paul will, will say. He will say that a, attempting to be wise, they became fools. That comes right out of Romans chapter 1. Attempting to be wise, they became fools. Two patterns of response, and and Paul's writing to a church in the first century, and evidently right then those two patterns of response were immediately visible even in the city of Corinth. Right there as Paul was writing to this congregation, the congregation could imagine Jewish people in their own community who were rejecting the gospel because the cross of Christ was a stumbling block. And right then they could see Gentiles in their very community who were rejecting the gospel because it appeared unto them as foolishness intellectually unsophisticated. To to the Greeks, it was unbelievable that one would argue 
Now, the entire purpose of God to redeem humanity came down to something as grotesque as a crucifixion on a cross and, the, and then the promise of an empty tomb as Christ had risen from the dead. In Acts chapter 17, Paul goes to Mars Hill and preached the gospel. And when he preaches the gospel, they, they just don't even really understand what he's saying. I mean, they understand he's talking about Christ crucified. They understand he's talking about Christ being risen from the dead, but they just don't get it because in their philosophical schools and in their philosophical systems, they didn't have any place for God to save humanity from its sins by a crucified Savior whom he would raise from the dead. That's really important that we know this. It's a very old pattern. So let's update it a bit as we just have talked about even liberal theology and the prosperity gospel and all of this. The, the people will try to find some other message than the cross. That's an amazing thing. And, and what we find, and again, I'm so thankful, the Holy Spirit led Scott to, re, to read from Galatians chapter one. And, and as your pastor read from Galatians chapter one this morning, he was saying to the Galatians, I am astounded that you would so quickly begin to preach a gospel, a gospel contrary to the one I delivered to you. You are preaching a false gospel and you are doing so so quickly. This is not a new pattern. But it is now a widespread pattern. And, and, and how does that get played out in our day? You see it in the fact that you know that there are churches, there are, there are congregations all over communities all around you, and you know good and well that you're not going to hear there what you hear here. You already know that when the preacher gets up to preach in some other churches, I'm sure fairly close by, What's preached is something other than the foolishness of the cross. And then what's missing is the power of the gospel. As I say, we need to come to a passage like this because right now it jumps out at us precisely because we are seeing exactly what Paul saw in Corinth. When the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this letter, what he was seeing is the pattern that we come to understand and see right now. Well, what would it take to remove this foolishness? What, what, what would it take to remove the scandal of the cross? What would it take to remove the, the folly and make the gospel appear worldly wise? Well, if you look at liberal churches and what they are now preaching, what, now, what they're now teaching, you know, you can be spiritual but not religious. You can have Christianity without Christ, without cross, without empty tomb. You, you, can, you can have meaning without truth, without propositional truth. You can, have, you can have satisfaction in life without any commitment to doctrine. What they are saying is exactly what the Apostle Paul warned us about. What it would take to remove the scandal of the cross is taking out the cross. What it would take to make Christianity look worldly wise is to imagine exactly what kind of Christianity would fit in the faculty lounge at the Harvard Divinity School. That is not going to be centered in the problem of sin and God's remedy through a substitutionary atonement and God's victory in a resurrected Christ. Two weeks from now, it's amazing how many churches will be holding Easter services and they don't actually believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, I, I noticed this, and you know one of the interesting things is, you look in these liberal churches, they're still going to declare the truth. 
They're going to declare that Jesus Christ was our substitutionary savior, and they're going to declare that God bodily raised him from the dead. But they're not going to declare it from the pulpit. They're still going to sing old hymns. I wonder if they even note the disconnect. Because they're going to sing these, you know, up from the grave he arose. Christ the Lord is risen today. And then in the pulpit they're going to say, well, we don't actually mean that. What's going to make the festival, that, that day in which we celebrate the resurrection, every single Lord's Day is a celebration of the resurrection, but it's right and proper that, that we would even in, in terms of, 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 of the year have a special emphasis in which we just declare to the world around us, Christ the Lord is risen today. That is good and that is righteous, but you're going to sing it and you're going to hear the same message declared from this pulpit right in the face of a world that says that's crude and unsophisticated. It's foolishness. So to answer the question, what would it take to remove this foolishness is everything that saves. Everything that saves. You see the great clash of worldviews here, and you see it right in this text. But there's something else that becomes very clear. This, this passage would be absolutely devastating to us if it just ended with the cross is foolishness to the Greeks and a scandal, a stumbling block to Jews. If that's where it ends, we're in big trouble. But you'll notice this clash of worldviews, this, this clash of understandings begins right where Paul begins here in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but, oh, thank goodness for that, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There is that great clash, that great contrast, that great alternative. You're going to stand in one place or the other. Have you noticed there's no middle ground here? There's no, there's no middle ground in which you can say, well, the gospel is, you know, it, we might be able to modify it to make it slightly less scandalous. You know, let, let, let's not dispense with it altogether. Let, let's just see if we, can, if we can make the stumbling block smaller and if we can make the, the foolishness of the cross perhaps less glaring. Some years ago, I was reading a novel by a man by the name of Peter DeVries, and uh, he, uh, he at least knows what Christianity is although he, he, he rejected it in terms of, a, well, exactly what we're looking at here. But he also understood what was at stake. And, and in one of his novels, he describes a very liberal preacher. And he preaches in one of these up-to-date New York churches. And it's a, they actually had the architect come in and design it so there would be no hard edges. You got hard edges here, Scott. That implies hard truth might hurt somebody. He wanted a, the pulpit was made absolutely round so that there were no hard edges and, uh, and everything was made up, up to date and, uh, and everything was soft. You walked in, it was all earth tones, you know, nothing to, nothing to offend anybody. And the pastor preaches a very liberal message and he's very sophisticated. People love to come in here and give a sophisticated message. And, uh, and then his wife dies, pastor's wife dies. And there's a cranky old guy in the church who still ap- happens to be a Christian. And he doesn't know any better. He's not as intellectually sophisticated as the rest of the people in the congregation. And, and he wants to honor the pastor's wife, whom he loved. And so he gets a billboard right across from this beautiful, sophisticated church. And on the billboard, he puts in fluorescent pink, Jesus saves. A cross right in the middle of it. I'll never forget reading this. It's, again, it's a, it's a novel, but it just captures exactly the moment in which we live. The pastor walks into a study and he says, I want that guy in here. I want to talk to him. Who put that up? And the guy comes in and he says, I put that up because I loved your wife. And I just, I just wanted to honor her because underneath it says, in honor of Mrs. Peter Mackerel. The pastor's name is Peter Mackerel. The pastor says, I want to see the man. So he comes in and 
This pastor turns to the layman, this cranky old guy who still believes the gospel, who put up that billboard, and then he utters these words. He says, how am I to write a decent message with that through my window staring me in the face? And you look at that and you go, oh, there are a lot of people who wouldn't put it that way, who aren't preaching that way. These days, it's not just that we got heretics out there saying, we don't believe this, this ought to be dispensed with, Christianity has to be something else. Time and again, I've debated Bishop John Shelby Spong, the, uh, the former Episcopal bishop. I mentioned this at the Shepherd's Conference because lately he's come out with a new book. After I thought he had denied every doctrine imaginable and run out of material, he's, uh, he's still at it, came out with another book. And, and, but at least, uh, at least a John Shelby Spong, you recognize when you see one. What's much more dangerous is the preacher that gets up and says, yeah, I know that's what the text says, but let me tell you what it means. And, and, and he tries to find a halfway point between belief and unbelief, between heresy and orthodoxy. And just be so thankful you're in a church that says, here's the word of God, all of it. How much of it do we believe? All of it. How much do we preach? All of it. How much do we stand behind? All of it. How much of it saves? All of it. You notice the great contrast here, and and here's where we need to note. Again, we saw this in verse 18, the contrast between those who see the word of the cross as foolishness, they're the perishing ones, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's an interesting contrast. It doesn't say that the the difference here is between those who are dying and, and, and those who are smart enough to follow Christ. It says it's a division between those for whom it is folly and those who are being saved. Who are they? Who who are these people who are being saved? Well, here there is a very important doctrine that is included within this text. It is an essential doctrine to our understanding. It is the doctrine of effectual call. Those who are being saved are described in two different verses in this passage as those who are called. Look at verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is seen as the power of God and the wisdom of God. Then look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So this is a good humbling moment for us. It grounds us in the gospel and in our eternal hope, but it reminds us that we're not here because we were more religiously sensitive than the people who rejected the gospel. We're not here. We haven't come to Christ because we're in our own way more intelligent. It's not that somehow there's a superiority in us. As a matter of fact, it doesn't say that to those of us who volunteered for the gospel, to those of us who are smart enough to seize upon the gospel, it says to those who are being called. So what explains how we heard the gospel? This is so clarifying, it's so important. Why did we hear the gospel? Why, when someone shared the gospel with us and told us that we were sinners and and pointed to Christ as Savior, why when we heard the preaching of the gospel, maybe we were sitting in a church service and for the first time, maybe we heard it before, but we hadn't heard it before. Maybe we heard the preaching of the gospel and all of a sudden we realized not only that we are 
sinning, but that we are sinners, that I am a sinner and I need a savior. And Christ is preached and his, his, his substitutionary atonement is declared and his victory over death as God raised him from the dead is declared and, and, and salvation is promised to all who believe in him and repent of their sins. Why is it that we responded to that gospel? It's not because of us. It's because of God's Holy Spirit working in our hearts, regeneration. It is because there is a quickening that has to take place as the Holy Spirit invades our thinking, our minds, our hearts, and opens us to receive the wisdom of God, the saving wisdom of God in the gospel. It is because of effectual calling, which is the theological way of saying that God begins the process of calling a sinner unto himself. And as the Apostle Paul says, when he begins, he ends that process. Effectual calling is such a precious thing to us because it reminds us that when we preach the gospel, people actually come. When we preach the gospel, people actually believe. And we know that in firsthand testimony because we became a Christian because someone shared the gospel with us and we seized upon it. It may have been even to us moments before a stumbling block and foolishness. We may have been in a seminar room in an academic institution joining in the derision of the gospel one minute only to hear the gospel and be saved a few minutes later. How does that happen? That's because of God's effectual calling to those who are called both Jews and Greeks. God shows his glory in saving sinners and in calling those sinners to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It points to his sovereignty in salvation. It points to the fact that salvation is by grace alone. If we called ourselves, salvation wouldn't be by grace alone. If we were smart enough to open our own hearts to receive the word of the gospel, we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit and and salvation would not be by, by grace alone. It wouldn't be by faith alone. We wouldn't be justified by faith alone. We'd be justified by faith and our own contribution to be so wise as to recognize the gospel and seize upon it. No, we are the called. That's why we sing in in Amazing Grace, once I was blind, but now I see. It's because the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes. And then we get that inside view that Paul gives us in verses 27 and following. How does God glorify himself? By choosing that which is foolish in the world to shame the wise. By the way, you notice this, Paul's telling us here that God chooses to work this way for two reasons. Number one, to save those whom he calls and to humiliate those who reject the gospel. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He will be shown on the day of judgment to be God only wise. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, enlightened, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Again, there are going to be people in liberal churches who are going to sing that hymn, and then they're going to deny what they just sang. We have here very clearly, as Paul gives us the inside view, that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Oh my goodness, you think, well, how would that work anyway? Seriously, we're in the presence of God and we're going to boast? But think of Jesus when he tells the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee stands up and and, and prays to God his resume. And how does that tax collector pray? 
Oh God, be merciful upon me, a sinner. There's no intellectual sophistication in that prayer. There's no worldly wisdom in that prayer. There's no attempt at self-justification in that prayer. It is nothing more than a, a sinner crying out for salvation to a savior who is mighty to save. Finally, we look at this text and we have to ask the question, so how are we going to teach this and preach this? And what is our response? Well, look at verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So when we gather together for worship, we gather together not to pat each other on the back, to talk about how wise we are to be smart enough to be here. But by the sheer grace and mercy of God, look at how God brings glory to himself by saving the likes of us. Just look around the room. We are God's refutation of the wisdom of the world. And, and, and there's glory in that. And not only that, we are told that what we receive in Christ is not just salvation, the wisdom of God, but righteousness, that's Christ's imputed righteousness that is given to every believer by the declaration of the Father. Sanctification, there is holiness, a process that begins in us as we begin our walk with Christ. Redemption, we are saved. And as the Bible says, I love this, saved to the uttermost. In other words, we are saved in every possible way. We are saved from every danger and we are saved eternally in Christ. So that, let the one who boasts, as it is written, boast in the Lord. And then what are we to do as a church? Paul says, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the wisdom of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that's what we do every Sunday morning. That's that's what has to happen from the pulpit. The preacher saying, I'm not here to deliver lofty words of sophisticated worldly wisdom. If you want that, there's a university nearby. I'm not coming preaching to you a non-scandalous message that no one's going to find offensive. If you want that, go to the local social club. I'm here to preach Christ and him crucified. This is the glorious apostolic message. This This is where the apostle Paul said, I want you to know every time I show up, I'm a, one, I'm a one gospel man. I'm a one message man. I don't preach something different in Corinth than I do in Rome or in Philippi or in Ephesus. When you have me come, I'm going to preach the same gospel everywhere I come because I'm not ashamed, as he said to the Romans, of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. When I came to you, Corinthians, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, I'm, I developed a preaching, a homiletical allergy to in any way doing anything other than getting right to the cross. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, what the preacher needs to do is read the text and then make a beeline to the cross. And that means when there are people who just might be offended by the cross, the preacher gets up and says, oh, by the way, this is for you, a beeline to the cross. Why? Because the authentic preacher knows it's the only message that saves. There's no other reason for us to get up and preach. There's no other message for us to preach when we arrive here than Christ and him crucified. And then pointing to himself, he says, I was with you in meekness. His words best translated here is weakness, and in fear and in much trembling. 
And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You know, most congregations say, what we're looking for, we're looking for a powerful preacher. Well, powerful in what? Powerful in speech? Well, even in 1 Timothy 3, we're told that the preacher must be able to preach. There's a, there's a certain rhetorical ability that is necessary for anyone's going to preach the word. But if the power is in the oratory, if the power's in the rhetoric, it's not going to be in the gospel. What kind of power did Paul want to represent? He said, I, I'm very, very, very determined that I would come to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. And, and he makes very clear, I didn't, try to, I didn't try to dress up my message. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but what? In demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You know what the Apostle Paul is saying here? He's saying, you know, do you want evidence? Do you, do you need evidence, humble, direct evidence of the power of the gospel? I was once named Saul, and I was once a persecutor of the church. I set my entire life to put an end to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You talk about a stumbling block to Jews? I was the chief prosecutor against that stumbling block. But I'm not Saul, as I'm preaching to you in Corinth. Hello, my name is Paul, because on a road to Damascus, I was met by the Lord Jesus Christ. I was not saved by lofty words of wisdom. I wasn't saved by Christ removing the stumbling block. Rather, I was saved by the fact that he seized me and made me his own. The final verse we read in verse 5, these final words, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. A few years ago, uh, group of feminist theologians gathered together in New York City for a convention. I'm sure you're sorry you missed it. Uh, one, one feminist theologian got up and she was trying to explain how Christianity needed to be updated in order to make sense to a world in which ideological feminism would, uh, would reign supreme. And she infamously said, well, here's one of the things we got to fix. We don't need crosses dripping with blood and other grotesque stuff. Well, I couldn't say it better in reverse. You know, the only way we're saved is because of a cross that was dripping in blood. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And the only reason sinners are saved is because we come to that cross and we see on that cross the love of God as Christ died as our substitute, paying the full penalty for our sin. But our salvation then points to an empty tomb because if Christ is still in that tomb, as the Apostle Paul said, we're of all people most to be pitied, but Christ has been raised from the dead. And salvation is promised to all who believe in him and repent of their sins and by God's grace and mercy come to him. They are the ones who are called in whom that effectual calling is taking place as the Holy Spirit speaks into their hearts. There may be someone here even today and, and even when you came in this room you thought you knew what the gospel of Christ was and you thought it was for someone else and maybe right now even, even as you're hearing the words of scripture you realize this is about you and this you thought was foolishness for someone else is actually the saving message of God for you. So what are we to do? Keep preaching this gospel because we don't have another one. 
We preach this gospel because it saves. We preach this gospel till we die or till Jesus comes. And then every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.